Thanks for joining us. The following is a presentation of Ignite Global Ministries and features the teaching of Pastor Ben Dixon. Pastor Ben has a vision of strengthening the church to impact the world. He serves as lead pastor at Northwest Foursquare Church in Federal Way, Washington. you have your Bible, open it to Mark chapter 12. We're going to be looking at that today. Some of it's just informational, but we want to know all of this because it contextualizes what it is that we're studying for the long term, not just today's study, but also it's helped set up a lot of what we have and will be talking about. Mark chapter 12, let's go ahead and pray as we open the Word of God today. Father, we thank you for your Word, and we do pray that you would help us to understand your Word. Your word is a lamp unto our feet. It's a light to our path. We pray that your light would shine brightly. Holy Spirit, give us revelation uh, in your word and help give us the grace to follow through and to walk out what your word says. And we thank you that that's what you're going to do. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Thanks for following along. This is, uh, again, Mark chapter 12. I'm going to go ahead and read the first, I believe it is 13 verses. I'm sorry, 12 verses. And then uh, once we're finished with that, we're going to actually read just a couple more verses. I might focus a little bit more on verses 13 through 17 or 18, because there's some things there that I think could be helpful for us. So let's go ahead and read verse one. Here's what it says. And he, Jesus, began to speak to them in parables. And he says, a man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers or vine dressers, some translations say, and he went on a journey. Now, by the way, if you read Isaiah chapter 5, you're going to see some very clear parallels. So just want to put that out there so that if you're going to read later or you want to study more about this in particular, you should read Isaiah chapter 5. We're not going to do that today, but it's just an important note. Verse 2, at the harvest time, he sent out a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. They took him, they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed. So with many others, beating some and killing others. He had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vine vineyard to others. Have you not even read the scriptures? The stone, this is Psalm 118. This is a quote from Psalm 118. I think it's verse 22 through 23. He says, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left and went away. Let's go ahead and go into verse 13 to 18. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. They came and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and you defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. It is lawful to, is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Now that was a huge issue in their day, and I'll talk about that in a minute actually. Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? 
Bring me a denarius to look at. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? Some translations say, Whose image is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar's the things that are his, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed. And they certainly were. And they actually go on to ask him another question. The Sadducees do. You have the Pharisees and the Herodians team up together to ask him one question, trying to trap him. And the Sadducees come, and then they start to ask him another question, which we won't have time for today. But let's go ahead and just look at Mark chapter 12, verse 1 through 12. I referenced this story a little bit on Wednesday night when we were talking about Old Testament prophets, because they're mentioned in this, even though we don't necessarily hear the term prophets. We know that's exactly what Jesus was talking about when he mentioned servants, but I'll say, I'll talk about that when I get there. Verse 1 in chapter 12, he began to speak to them in parables. We know that he's doing that to conceal the truth. Those that have ears to hear will hear, and those that don't won't. They're actually trying to, uh, they're looking for Jesus constantly and consistently at this point to catch him in some way where they could seize him, they could accuse him, they could kill him in whatever way, even dismantle his power among the people. Uh, that the, the mighty crowd is following Jesus at this time. They're jealous, they're angry, they're upset. And so they're doing whatever they can to get rid of Jesus, right? So Jesus gives them this parable. He says, a man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it, dug a vat under the wine press, and he built a tower, rented it out to the vine growers, and he went on a journey. Now, Mark doesn't identify the hearers of this parable, though they were probably chief priests, uh, teachers of the law, elders. We don't exactly know, but that's the assumption. And this scenario that Jesus gives in the parable is not unfamiliar. It wasn't uncommon for a landowner to prepare a vineyard, rent it to tenants. And in fact, much of the land at this time was in the hands of absentee landowners who constructed uh, or they contracted with uh, tenants and they would have sort of a crop sharing uh, contract, so to speak. This was actually pretty common. Um, and so when he gives this story, you know, they're thinking of hillsides with that are covered with grape vineyards, which was the backbone of their economy. So he's giving, again, Jesus gives parables that speak to the heart of the person that is hearing him. And so if he were in 2020 and he were giving situations that apply to us today, it wouldn't look like this. It wouldn't sound like this. And so we just have to understand that, that the principle is what we're trying to get to, right? That's what Jesus is telling the story for. That's what he's giving the parable for, is he's trying to get to the principle. He's trying to get to the point. But they would have understand this or understood this very, very well. It's common sight in Israel. So this verse seems to make it clear, at least to me, that the owner here is God. The vine dressers are the Jewish leaders. The field, some say, is Israel, but I would actually say it's probably the world. And the reason that I say that, not the world is in the terra firma, but the world is in the people, Jew and Gentile. Now that's debatable, okay? But the reason I think it's not just Israel is because the stewardship of Israel as God's covenant people at this time, and God still God's covenant people, first covenant people, I would say that their stewardship was not merely going to be for Israel alone, although that's all that they thought. We can see from the other passages Jesus even says in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 through 20, go and make disciples of all nations. Mark 16, preach the gospel to all creation. Peter didn't even get this until Acts chapter 10, where Jesus has to show him this elaborate vision 
or and I won't get into that because it's a lot. But my point is, is that Israel was called along, uh, was called to God's side as His first covenant people to steward this not only the temple, the law, the priests, the sacrifices, that was initially, but eventually that they would also be the bearers of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And those who became messianic certainly were. And so when you look at a parable like this, I don't want to make too much of some of the details, but we know that the landowner was God. We know the vine dressers were the Jewish leaders. The field is the world or Israel. And the owners, uh, the owner's servants are the prophets. And of course, the son is Jesus. And so verse 2, we're talking about vintage time, harvest time, and it says that he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. Now this, again, common scenario. This was the crop sharing contract that, this, that they would understand. They had this. This was common. And so as he sends the servant to get some of the crop, that was the payment. The payment was, you're going to give me some of the produce. And so God, in a sense, is saying, the servant would come to the vine dressers. These were the prophets of the Old Testament. The prophets would come and they would call God's people to action. They would call God's people back to the law. Even the corrupt priests, even those that were the leaders of the people, even the kings, the prophet's job was to call God's people back to covenant faithfulness. And they did that. And what happened was the people, as Jesus is indicting them, those that are listening, he's saying that you wounded and you killed the servants. And they did that. That's actually history. And there's a passage, I think it's Acts chapter 7, where Stephen is about to be martyred, and he says to the religious leaders that are accusing him at that time, he's saying, you know, your fathers were the ones who um, persecuted the prophets. And, and that made them angry, of course. But that's what he's saying. And this, and this is a reference, like, think about it, though. This is a reference to the sins of the fathers. All right, now there are passages in Ezekiel where it says that the sins of the fathers will not be the curse of the sons. And so we know that that's actually prophesying into the new covenant. The new covenant cuts off the curse. But it does state that there is a time, and under that curse, outside of Christ, the sins of the fathers will become the sins of the sons. So generational sins are something that continue in this cycle. And we actually see that in this. And there's an indictment of past sins onto present people. Why? Because present people are continuing past sins. And this only can be released in Christ. And I just want to point that out. I think it's really important. Verse 3, they took him, they beat him, they sent him away empty-handed. Verse 4, again, he sent them another slave. These are the prophets. Uh, verse 5, he sent another, and that the one they killed, so with many other beatings, some and killing others. Verse 6, he had one more to send, his beloved son. They will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, this, this is the heir, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be, will be ours. This is where Jesus is calling out their ultimate sin of what they're actually plotting to do. What are they plotting to do? Kill Jesus. So Jesus is claiming, and they're kind of understanding, he's claiming to be the Son of God. This is where Jesus, in multiple occasions, would claim deity. For some reason, I've heard a lot of Bible scholars say Jesus didn't claim deity. Yeah, he did. He did it all over the place. And so he's calling out their jealousy. He's calling out their anger. He's calling out their blindness. They're not wanting to lose power and authority because the following around Jesus is getting huge and massive, and they're perplexed because of the miracles. So they've already 
accused him, indicted him in their own mind, and so they're trying to catch him in any way that they can. So he tells this parable to just call them out. And then in verse 8, he says, what will the, what will the owner of the vineyard do? What will the owner of the vineyard do? Oh, verse 9, he will come and destroy the vine growers and he will give the vineyard to another. Now, I mean, I've read a lot of commentaries that talk about this could be, you know, we know the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Um, we know that the gospel was entrusted into messianic, the hands of messi- <clears throat> messianic Jews for at least a period of time. And then Acts chapter 10, we see the Gentiles, uh, the gospel is made available to the Gentiles. And then it really just moves beyond into the known world and the unknown world as history unfolds. And so what we some would say is that this is Jesus actually talking about how he is going to entrust his ministry into the hands of both Jew and Gentile. And this was not fully understood by those that were listening to him, at least I don't think so. But we know that Messianic Jews and Gentiles were the ones that stewarded the church. Now, here's something that you won't always hear. I'm, I don't believe in replacement theology. I believe that God's first covenant people, his first friends, Israel, still have a purpose. God is still moving among those in Israel. He's calling them to be Messianic. In that, they believe Jesus is the Messiah. And so I don't believe that the church just takes over, per se, and the, that all of the... the promises made to Israel are null and void. Absolutely not. I think there are promises under the old covenant that still remain true that God will fulfill in the new covenant to his first covenant people, Israel, his first friends. That's what I believe. I believe the scriptures back that up. It would take an extremely long amount of time to actually prove that. But I think it's really important that sometimes we're listening very carefully because there are teachers today that teach replacement theology, which means that the church takes the place of Israel entirely and completely, and unless they become part of the church, they have no nothing to do with God. Well, in one sense, okay, I get what that means, but in another sense, it doesn't mean that that which God has promised to Israel in the past is null and void. There are things that God is doing. There are things, ways in which God is moving among Israel. It takes a long time to explain all that. We won't get into it, but here's what we have. We have this scenario. We have this sort of story that he's giving, this parable where Jesus is indicting those of the religious leaders that are listening and saying, this is not only what you have done, but it is what you will do. You are going to kill the son. I mean, that's kind of crazy that he's calling them out. And then he evokes Psalm 118, verse 22 through 23. He says, have you not read? He moves from the vineyard to the building. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone, and this came about from the Lord, and it's marvelous in our eyes. You've rejected the chief cornerstone. And as a result of hearing this, they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke a parable against them. So he left. they left and went away. It's amazing, right? So they're still seeking how they can get Jesus. They're still seeking how they can trap him, because ultimately they want to accuse him, and they really do want to do away with him. And there's a lot there. But we know that Jesus is just telling the story with that primary truth of what is about to to happen. He's furthering that understanding. Now, I want to read and really focus on verse 13 through 17. And we've talked about this, or I, I read this just a moment ago. Verse 13, then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to him in order to trap Jesus. And so we know that the the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they're trying to catch him in various ways. They're trying to accuse him. 
Secondarily, they're, ho they're hoping that maybe even Rome would uh, take care of their problem. And so if they can prove that he's in an insurrectionist, that would probably be the easiest thing for them. But if they can't do that, they want to at least dismantle his authority and his power among the people so they'll stop following him. But either way, they're just trying to do whatever they can. So this is like, there's a series of questions. There was one in Mark chapter 11, and there's two right here in Mark chapter 12. We won't read the, the second one in this chapter, but just the first one. When they come to Jesus, they ask him, uh, verse 14, they first flatter him. Uh, they come and they say, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Now, this is an imperial tax, and this was a debated thing, right? Can you imagine in their culture, um, there were some Jews that just did not want to pay this tax and would not because they felt like if we pay this tax, then we are ascribing the, the, the right to the Roman rule. And we don't agree with the Roman rule. We don't agree that they should have authority over us. So if we pay this tax, it's like we are saying that they have that right. So some Jews just flat out would not pay it. So there was this massive debate. So you have two people that are asking Jesus this question. You have the Pharisees, that, that term means separatists. They were the conservatives of that day, obviously. And then you have the Herodians, and the Herodians were those that were loyal to Herod. And so Herod Antipas at the time, and he was merely a puppet of Rome. And so they're loyal to him. They're a political party. These two groups of people don't really get along. They don't really um, come together on anything. It seems like people only come together for hating Jesus, at least those that are against him. And so they come together to catch him. They come together to hopefully accuse him, to trick him. Obviously, that's not going to happen, and that's a bad day for them to even try to do something uh, like that. And so, want to catch him as an insurrectionist so that Rome will take care of the problem, or they want to discredit him among the people. So they ask him about this, this toll, this tax that was an imperial tax everyone had to pay. They know that it was unpopular among Jews. They know it was debatable. And so if they can get Jesus to say something publicly, which is what they want to do, then they know that Jesus will be in trouble. But listen, you and I know it's not going to happen. Why? Because Jesus is wise and he knows how to answer his accusers. He knows what to say. He knows what to do. And that's exactly what we read about here. Verse 15, shall we pay Jesus or shall we not pay why don't you tell us what to do? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said, why are you testing me? He knew that they were two-faced. He knew that they were not asking sincerely. They didn't care. They just wanted to catch him. Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius. Now, a denarius was a small silver coin. It was probably a day's wage for a soldier um, or some, someone that would work a job like that. That's what it was worth. He says, bring me a denarius. And they brought him one. The denarius would have the inscription of, uh, you know, Caesar on it, basically the the Roman emperor, and that would have been uh, at that time. That would have been Tiberius. Uh, there were two coins that were in circulation. You have the one of Augustus, Caesar Augustus, and Caesar Tiberius, and so that's what they would have brought to him in this uh, coin. They brought it to him and they said, who, and he says, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. So that would have been whoever the current Caesar was, uh, Tiberius. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar. What that means is give back to Caesar. Give it back to him. Give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Okay, so this is an interesting response. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. 
So the money system is not necessarily God-ordained. In fact, I would actually argue that the money system is not God-ordained. It, it doesn't mean that God's against it. I'm just saying that that's the system that we created to transact with. I don't think the money system is going to be something we're going to have in heaven at all. I think that, uh, and this isn't to say a political statement, I just think that that's the system that we've, that we've created, that we've come up with. And so when Jesus says, render unto Caesar's what is his, well, it's clearly a coin that has an image of Caesar. So that being minted by him is going to give it back to him. Like this isn't, this isn't eternal wealth and value. This isn't what it's about. Um, but he's saying two things at the same time, that there are things of this world that don't conflict uh, with our worship and service to God, but that doesn't mean because we transact that way and we do it even the right way, it doesn't mean that we're giving to God what is God's. So he says two things at the same time. Give back to Caesar's what is his, but give to God what is his. And that's the indictment. So the question to him actually becomes a statement from him where Jesus is saying, are you, in a sense, giving to God what is his? Are you worshiping God because you bear the image of God? It's implied. It isn't said, but it's implied. This is the image of Caesar, but you bear the image of God. So with your whole life, are you giving back to God, God what is His? And that really is the question. It's about surrender. This is something more important. Jesus has a, an amazing way of taking a question or even a conflict of current culture and turning it back on us. And we're in that right now. Human beings have been going through all kinds of current culture questions as long as we've been alive, okay? What are we supposed to do? What does God want us to do? They're not asking because they really care, but we certainly are because there were some Jews that wouldn't pay this poll tax, this imperial tax. They thought that if I pay this tax, then I am saying that Romans have the right to rule, and they certainly don't. And Jesus has no problem with it. It's not about Roman rule. They're not in charge of you as, as a human being. They don't own your life. But this is their system, so give that it, within their system, function within their system in a way that gives back to them, and you can do that without a conflict in your worship and your service to God. He's saying that very clearly. Uh, that would have been uh, interesting, but he doesn't only say that. He has a way of saying, and give back to God what is God's. Think about the other questions that Jesus was asked. One time Jesus was asked about marriage. We studied that back in the book of Matthew. It is also in the book of Mark. And they're asking him about, you know, what do you say? Because there were two camps of, or schools of thought when it came to certificates of divorce. There were some that, says, that would say that when you marry, you marry for life. And so writing a certificate of divorce would be a very extreme thing to do, right? Maybe in the conflict of unfaithfulness, but, but even then they, they, they were very much like, it was all about that oneness. It was all about God's design. That was, that was actually the smaller, the, the, the view that was unpopular. The view that was popular was we can write certificates of divorce, men towards their wives, if they just didn't cook the thing we wanted or the way we wanted, or they didn't look the way we wanted, and they wanted to, you know, marry somebody that was younger and more attractive. So when they asked Jesus the question, you'll remember Moses said, what do you say about writing certificates of divorce? And Jesus says to them, this is not what it's about. He goes back to Genesis chapter 2 and he says that this is why God designed marriage, that a man would leave his father and mother and cling to his wife and the two shall become one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. 
He gives the concession at the time where he says, except for marital unfaithfulness, which is not really what they were dealing with primarily. 90% of the time, that wasn't the issue. It was that they really wanted to go marry someone else. So they would write a certificate, a certificate of divorce, which they thought was lawful for any reason, okay, because their hearts were corrupt, and they would go marry who they wanted to marry at that time. And he says, those that divorce and remarry are committing adultery. And they didn't, so the reason he was saying that was because you're you're divorcing so that you can remarry, and that's still adultery. Well, in their culture, when you commit adultery, it was a very serious crime against their law. And so when they thought, as they thought they were writing certificates of divorce, that it was okay and lawful for them to just go and remarry somebody else. And Jesus is indicting them saying, no, you're still committing a transgression against the law. But my point is, is that he actually brings up a more weighty matter, that you don't understand the purpose of marriage. I just love how when Jesus is asked a question, instead of just answering it, because that's what we want, Jesus, just answer my question. Is it something that we should do? Should we pay tax? Because we just want to solve these these small problems that are so significant to us. Should I do this? Is it right for me to do this? And Jesus goes, hey, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. And he actually introduces a real problem for them. The problem that they think they're facing is not the problem. The real problem is, are we fully, completely, and totally surrendered to God? We bear the image of God. This coin bears the image of Caesar. Hey, that's not a big deal. Give it back to him. But you bear the image of God. Are you giving your whole life to God? And in the marriage question, it was the same. You're asking about divorce. Why don't you ask the question about marriage? What is marriage? How does marriage stay together? How does marriage thrive? How is marriage an example of what God designed in order to create legacy and human flourishing that reflects the very nature and the love of God and His design, His order? I mean, this is amazing. I love how Jesus brings it back to the main thing. And can I just say, I wanted to bring that up because to me, the reason, the reason I'm talking about how Jesus thinks or how God thinks. Sometimes we're asking him a question. And then in this context, they're trying to indict him. They're trying to accuse him. They're, they're trying to get rid of Jesus. But I'm just bringing up a bigger point here is that sometimes even in our little conflicts, and they're big to us, right? And to me, we bring up these conflicts. Jesus, what do you think? What do you want us to do? And what he's doing is he's drawing us back to the purpose, the, the bigger issue of surrender to him of what his word really says, what this is all really about. He wants us to go back and see this from a bigger perspective. Let me ask you a question. In the world that we're living in today, with the polarization in every arena imaginable, are we actually taking a step back and studying the word and saying, okay, what's the, what's the real purpose of my life? What's the real purpose of marriage? What's the real purpose of parenting? What's the real purpose of honoring? See, a lot of times in our conflicts and our questions, we forget and we lose track or lose sight of what this is all about. What is my life all about? What does it mean to honor God? What does it mean to be in the world and not of the world? You know, these are the questions that God wants us to start asking because when we do, we won't lose sight of our life being grounded and founded on Him, and we will be so full of purpose, we will not forget 
what we're about. We will not forget what we're supposed to do. And the conflicts that we have all of a sudden get a little bit more simple, not because they don't matter to God, but in the scope of things, we start to see them as they are. Hey, just take care of this. Just do this thing because it doesn't have any, um, it, it doesn't, it doesn't have any bearing on whether or not you're fully surrendered to God or not, honestly. Now, there are things that do. There are things that are in conflict of our worship and our service to God. And the Word of God spells that out really clearly. But there are many things that aren't, and we make those these big fights. And that's what they had done when it came to the poll tax. I just think it's very interesting when you think about the ministry of Jesus. Where do I want to land today? Maybe you're in conflict over some of the issues that we're facing today. Can I suggest to you that in your conflict, take a step back, look at the bigger picture. What does it mean for you to live a life fully surrendered to God? Don't assume, let's not assume that our lives are fully surrendered to God. What if this season of time is to reflect that we've not been fully, our lives have not been fully laid down, surrendered in our questions to God. God loves us. He cares about our questions, the details of our life. He wants to answer those things, but he wants to broaden our view. He goes back to the purpose of marriage. He goes back to the purpose that we are created in the image of God, and therefore our life is meant to worship him. And we don't want to get conflicted, and we don't want to get confused in the world that we live in. We're in the world. We're not of the world. It doesn't mean we don't interact and transact within the world system. We certainly do, But he's saying, that's not the main thing. That's not the main trajectory, the purpose of your life. Make sure that you have that down. And I think he's asking those questions of us today as well. And part of his statements back to us, maybe we're not getting the answers that we want, but sometimes that's because God wants to kick the conversation up another level so that we can be in alignment with him. I would tell you, that's what the Lord's doing with me today. That's what the Lord's doing with me today. I want to ask Jesus should I pay the temple tax? <laughs> Should I do the thing that's being asked of me? And, and sometimes he's like, that's, I mean, what you really should be doing is making sure that your whole life is surrendered to me. Is that true of you, right? And he doesn't do that with interrogation. He does that with love in his eyes. He does that with a heart, the heart of the Father towards us to lead us into places of peace, internal peace. See, look at what the conflict on the outside will do. It will give us turmoil pain, confusion. And he goes back to that. Here's what gives you peace on the inside. A lot of things on the outside you can take care of simply when you know that you know that you know your life is surrendered completely, totally, and thoroughly to the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord. And that's really what this was about. Caesar's not Lord. All right. Caesar is uh, a king in this world, but Jesus is the Lord of all creation. Jesus is Lord. And that's what this is about. Is our life surrendered to Jesus Christ fully, completely, 100%? Are we getting confused and conflicted on the smaller things? Because it can happen. It can happen to me and it can happen to you. And we, won't, we don't want to let that happen. Amen. We don't want to let that happen at all. Let's pray into that today. Praise the Lord as we close our time in Mark chapter 12. So many other things. Please do continue to read Mark chapter 12. Get as much out of it as you possibly can as you follow along. We've only got four more chapters, and then we're going to go back into the Old Testament. I love it. Hey, Father, we thank you for your word today, and we pray, God, that you would open our hearts to see the bigger picture. I pray that you would help us to know as we examine ourselves today, if we're surrendered to you fully and completely, and today we just declare our love for you. We ask, Lord, that in whatever way we're not surrendered, yielded to you and to your purposes, 
in today's world, I pray that you would lead us by the Holy Spirit to be 100% committed, surrender to you. I thank you for every person that's watching this, that's tuning in, that's listening online. I pray you would bless, strengthen them, fill them with the Spirit, give them wisdom. Give us wisdom today that we could navigate these troubled times, these difficult moments, these conflicts that arise in our world. I pray that we wouldn't lose the, the greater focus, the most important thing, which is to be surrendered to you, listening to you, founded, grounded on your word. I pray that you would do that today. Help us, we, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen and amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Ignite Global Ministries, please go to our website, igniteglobalministries.org. While there, check out our Immersion Discipleship School and the books Pastor Ben has written.